Our sermon text for this morning is from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Please turn with me, if you would, to Romans 8, verses 1 through 13. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you and we do pray, even as we come to read about the work of your Spirit, even as we've already read about the work of your Spirit, even as we come to think about the work of your Spirit, we we pray that we would not just read about it and think about it, but we pray that your Spirit would be at work, and that your Spirit would be at work in our hearts, drawing us to yourself, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, and humble hearts before you. So Father, draw us close to you now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, we have been talking about change. We began with an overview a few weeks ago of the process of change from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And the fundamental process we said and saw there was behold and become. As we see Jesus in all of his glory, we become like him. As one writer put it, we become what we worship. Last week, we looked at the the focal point of change, which is the active heart. The the heart is determinative of behavior. If we are to fundamentally change our behavior, our lives, the Spirit must change our hearts. And this week, we're looking at the agent of change, who is the Holy Spirit. Uh, Now, we've mentioned the Holy Spirit every week so far, Uh, Because we can't think about change in the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. He 
is the agent of change. There is no change, at least no transformation into Christ-likeness apart from him. So when uh, we talk about the Spirit, his role in change, there are lots of things that we could say. We could talk about the necessity of the Spirit's revelation of Christ, that he had to make Christ known to the apostles so that they could make Christ known in the Scriptures. We could talk about illumination, the Spirit opening our eyes and ears and minds and hearts to see Christ in all of his glory in those same scriptures. We could talk about the Spirit's work in regeneration and sanctification and empowering us for both new obedience and ministry as the church. The Spirit is central really to each of these works of God, that the Father and the Son work through the Spirit to apply salvation to the lives of God's people so that the Spirit is active at every point. We could have looked at John 14 through 16, which Todd read some verses from earlier, where Jesus promises to send the Spirit of truth, uh, the other counselor, as the NIV puts it, or helper, as the ESV puts it. We could have looked at Galatians 4, 4 through 7, which talks about the Spirit as the Spirit of adoption. Or Galatians 5, 16 through 26, where Paul exhorts us to walk by the Spirit and not to gratify the desires of the flesh. These are all great texts which point us to the Spirit's work. But this morning we're going to focus on Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And I, I wanted to go further than verse 13, but I had to stop somewhere. So we're stopping at verse 13. And we're, we're really looking at the question, uh, who works change in our lives? Who, who leads the charge? And uh, our answer is the Spirit. The Spirit does that. And so uh, then we're going to look at our text and ask, well, how, how does he do that? How does the Spirit work that change in our lives? And we'll see three things about the Spirit's work. And I, I think this outline is a, a little bit different from the outline that's in uh, the, the print version of the bulletin, but it's basically, the, it's in, essentially the same, just the wording is, has changed a little bit. So three things about the Spirit's work. Uh, the Spirit unites us to Christ. The Spirit justifies us in Christ. And the Spirit gives us life in Christ. And then we'll spend the most time looking at that last point, breaking that down further when we get there. So first, the, the Spirit unites us to Christ. When it comes to change, uh, many of us feel powerless. We've tried to change certain things in certain ways, uh, but things don't seem to get better. I, I've, I've done my best. I put in the effort. I've read all the books, but little seems to change. Or, or maybe there are baby steps forward, but for every step forward, there seem to be two steps back. And where is power found to change? And the answer is in the resurrected Christ. Christ has risen from the dead, and his resurrection changes everything. In the resurrected Christ is where resurrection power is found. And so it needs to be said up front, right, that the, the Spirit's role in the work of salvation is not independent from Christ's role. The Spirit does not have a, a separate work. Uh, the Spirit applies to us the work of Jesus. He does that by uniting us to Christ. Uh, th th there is not uh, one verse in this passage of Scripture uh, where this is spoken of, but in almost every verse it's found in this fir the first 13 chapters of Romans. Uh, but there are a few where it comes into the foreground. Uh, so verse 2, for example, says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, 
by sending his own son. I I skipped, didn't I? Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Meaning, uh, the the principle and power and person of the Spirit sets us free. How? By, By inserting us into Christ. We are free in Christ Jesus, Paul says. Notice the indwelling uh, language there uh, picks up again in verses 9 through 11. And it becomes even more apparent how this works. Uh, Notice the language there in verses 9 through 11. Paul says that we are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God is in us. But if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, he says, then we do not belong to him. But if Christ is in us, then the Spirit is life. Finally, he says in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, then God will give us life through his spirit who dwells in us. So we we are in the spirit, verse 9, if the spirit is in us. And that spirit can be called the spirit of God or the spirit of Christ or the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. And if that spirit is in us, Paul says, then Christ is in us. So how does the Spirit unite us to Christ? By coming to dwell inside of us and so bringing Christ into our hearts. And that's what we saw in John 14 uh, when Jesus says, beginning in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, for he dwells with you, he dwells with you and will be in you. Uh, the, The Spirit dwelt in Christ uh, you remember the Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism in fullness, and, and he would be in Christ's people at Pentecost. And in the very next verse in John 14, Jesus says, I, I do not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And then a few verses later in John 14:23, we, the Father and Son, will come to him and make our home with him. And so the, the coming of the Spirit, Jesus says, is the coming of the Father and the Son into the life of the believer. I will ask the Father, he will send you another helper. I will come to you, we will come to you, Jesus says. Now Jesus in John 14 and Paul in Romans 8, they're not confusing the persons of the Trinity. Uh, Rather, the way Jesus is present with us is through his spirit. The spirit brings Christ into our hearts so that if the spirit is in us, then Christ is in us. So how does the Spirit change us? The first answer is by by uniting us to Christ. And that's important for a a number of reasons. One is, you know, what is the change that the Spirit is going to make in us? He's going to conform us to the image of Jesus. And what is the source of that power for change? What's the resurrected uh, Jesus now living in us by his Spirit? And so both the power and the trajectory of change are Jesus, who is now living in us by his Spirit. If we are not joined to Jesus, there can be no lasting change, but the Spirit unites us to the resurrected Christ so that Christ is in us by faith. Second, the Spirit justifies us in Christ. Many people live under an abiding sense of of guilt, whether we understand it or not. Often a guilty conscience plagues us. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to placate that conscience. If I do a little more or be a little better, achieve something or earn something or win something, then I can feel good about myself. But these efforts all fail. Our conscience is no better, right? No achievement in this life can take away my sin before the throne of God in heaven. 
But thankfully, there is a better way than just trying harder. Verse 1 of Romans 8 begins, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then later on in the chapter, in Romans 8, 33 to 34, Paul will say, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. There is therefore now no condemnation. Why is that? Well, because of where we are. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to explain that a little further in the beginning of verse 2. Again, uh, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, the ruling power of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the ruling power of sin and death. The Spirit has come and brought you into Christ. Well, why does that matter? Uh, Verse 3 begins, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, what could the law not do? The law could not bring life. Why could the law not bring life? Because in our sinful flesh, we disobey the law. We don't keep it. We don't do what the law says. And so what does God do about that? The rest of verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. See, the father sends the son in the flesh, not uh, sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? Why does the father send the son? that in him, in Jesus, on the cross, God might condemn sin once and for all. Well, why does God want to condemn sin once and for all? So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, Jesus became as us so that we might become like him, right? So that we might be counted as keepers of the law, fulfillers of its requirement. In other words, that we might be justified, declared righteous in Jesus, Not because, of course, we have done good or we have fulfilled the law, but because Jesus did. And by the Spirit, we are in Jesus. So we are justified in Christ. And note the role of each person of the Trinity here. The Father sends the Son. The Son obeys in the flesh and is condemned for our sin in the flesh. And then the Spirit unites us to Christ, and so we are set free from condemnation in Christ Jesus. Now, already this this understanding that we are free from condemnation in Christ Jesus would begin to change our behavior. Think about it. What what happens when you are weighed down with guilt? Uh, Well, I I might become depressed because I feel like a failure, or I might spend my life trying to impress others because, well, I know how bad I am, but I I want others to think that I'm a good person because if, if they can love me, maybe God can love me too. Or I might lie about my failures and my sin because I'm unable to admit out loud uh, how uh, much I've sinned, lest the weight of that guilt crush me. Or I might become a really strict legalist, right? If, If only I can obey down to the letter of the law, every detail in the greatest degree, then maybe I can feel good about myself, right? I can become quickly controlled by rules, hoping to produce a righteousness of my own. Of course, a rules-based view of myself often turns into a rules-based view of you, which can lead to to being judgmental and condemning and critical of other people. Or I I might turn to alcohol or to drugs or or shopping or binge-watching, right? Anything to dull and distract me from the guilt. But if I know that I'm forgiven 
freed from condemnation. I don't have to live under the weight of that guilt any longer. Right? And so some people will be free from depression. Uh, others will stop trying to impress. Some will be freed from a rules-based view of themselves and be freed up to love God and neighbor. I can now live out of that knowledge of my freedom from condemnation in Christ because the Spirit justifies us in Christ. And so the Spirit unites us to Christ and then justifies us in Christ. And third, and we'll camp out here, the Spirit gives us life in Christ. Spirit unites us to Christ and through that union frees us from sin's penalty, frees us from sin's condemnation, and through that union we are given resurrection life. As we've already pointed out, the Spirit has taken up residence within God's people. Now, for Paul, this creates a contrast between two types of people, people who exist, verse 5, according to the flesh, and people who exist according to the Spirit. Your very existence, right, the principle of life within you is now different if you are in Christ. By nature, you existed or lived according to the flesh, according to the created order, which is now corrupted by sin. But now if the Spirit is in you, Paul says, you exist, you live according to the Spirit. The principle of life that is within you is not the flesh, but the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. And if the Spirit is in you, you have new life. What does that look like? Well, we can see at least three things from this passage. First, the the Spirit gives life by reorienting us. Look again at verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul, in, those pas- in that passage, says that there are basically two ways to live. First, those who live according to the flesh, verse 5, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. And here's what he's saying. Look, if all you know is the flesh, or uh, put it differently, if all you know is the, the present age, if this world is everything for you, you will set your minds on this world. You will evaluate everything by the standards of this age. You will boast in the accomplishments of this age or else despair in your failures. You will rely on the powers of this age or else wallow in your weakness. You will delight in the pleasures of this age or else grumble in their absence. You will model your life after the heroes of this age and you will hope, if you dare to hope, in the betterment of this age. See, if this age, if the flesh, if the created order is all there is, then you will set your mind on the things of the flesh. But, Paul says, verse 7, if you do that, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. See, God's standards are not the same as the standards of this age. God's power is antithetical to the powers of this age. God's joy is not found in the pleasures of this age, but in him. And so to live according to the flesh, to have your mind set on the present age, is to live at every point in opposition to the way of God in the world. And it's not just that the way of the flesh and the way of God are different, right? They are opposed to one another, 
Paul says, that the wisdom of God is folly to this age. A crucified Savior makes no sense. He could not save himself. How can he save us? That, that you would ask me to, to lose my life in order to find it. That makes no sense to those who are trying to squeeze every ounce of life out of the 70, 80, or 90 years they have on earth. Lose my life. I'm trying to save it. And so the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and his ways. It refuses to submit to God because his ways make no sense. It cannot submit to him because it is facing the wrong direction, oriented toward the present age. Those who are in the flesh, Paul says, cannot please God. Cannot because they will not and will not because their minds are set on the flesh, set on the present age. And yet Paul says in verse 9, you, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And then in verse 5, second half, he says, those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. See, what does the spirit do when he takes up residence within us? He reorients our minds. What does Paul say in Romans 12 too? Uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. Paul contrasts these two ways of thinking and two ways of living that flow from it in an extended passage in, in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So the spirit, uh, Paul is saying, both in Romans and in Ephesians, the spirit renews us in the spirit of our minds, or he transforms us by the renewal of our minds. The renovative work of the spirit begins in our minds. Now, as we saw last week, scripture doesn't draw a sharp distinction between the mind and the heart like we do. And so the point is that our heart must not be directed to the flesh, must not be directed to uh, this present age, but to the things of the spirit. So set your minds on the things of the Spirit. That, that's Paul's exhortation in Colossians chapter 3. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Paul would ask us, where is your mind? Uh, what do you think about? What do you daydream about? What do you meditate upon. The Spirit gives us life by, by reorienting us to the things of the Spirit. So set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Second, the Spirit gives us life both now and forever. If there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and if we are in Christ by the Spirit and given new life in the Spirit, that brings up a question. Why do we die? It's actually a good question. Paul said in Romans 5, death came into the world through sin. Sin brings condemnation. Condemnation brings death. If there is therefore now no condemnation, why do Christians die? It's a legitimate question, and Paul addresses it actually in verses 10 and 11. 
He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, there's an outcome to these two ways of living. Verse 6 said, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. But the fullness of that life, Paul says, is yet to come. He picks this back up later in Romans 8. Romans 8, 23, he says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have life in the Spirit, but we do not yet experience the fullness of that life. We wait for it. We groan for it. We eagerly expect it, but we do not yet experience it in fullness. And so we wait. And notice two things about that. First, as Christians who are in Christ, we follow the path of Christ. Right? He died and was raised, and we now experience death in the body as we await resurrection to come. Jesus is the, the forerunner, and as, as Hebrews 12, 2 puts it, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we experience in this life shame, suffering, and death now in the body as we await the resurrection of our bodies to come. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Second, notice what this promise of life in the future does. Again, we we are reoriented. This world is not all there is. This world is not our home. Something more is coming. I don't need this life to work out as I thought. That that frees me from much anxiety and pressure. That allows me to lighten up on others when they get things wrong. My hope is not in this life. When it is there, there is pressure to get things right. There is manipulation and controlling behavior. Everything has to work if my hope is this life is going to work. But my hope is not in this life, and so I'm free from having to control and manipulate. At the same time, I know everything will turn out, right? God is writing his story. Everything will be put right, which means though my hope is not in this life, I do have real hope. God is on the move. And I may see foretastes of that now, many signs of resurrection life breaking in here and there. But just as Jesus' hope was not in a little less pain on the cross, so our hope is not in a more comfortable life now, but in the resurrection life to come. And so the Spirit reorients us to the things of the Spirit, and and by His very presence, He gives us a foretaste of resurrection life to come. Third, the Spirit gives us life so that we can obey. This is the conclusion that Paul draws in verses 12 to 13. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And note uh, there the the obligation. Uh, Paul says we are not debtors to the flesh. Uh, Why not? Well, well, look at all that Christ has done for us, all that the Spirit has done for us. Look look how we no longer exist merely by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Notice the Spirit's work in us now and the, the promise of the Spirit's work in us to come. We have no obligation to the flesh because of all that God has done for us in Christ. So we have actually a calling in the Spirit. And you find that calling at the end of verse 13. 
where Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. And notice that, that first Paul assumes that Christians must still put sin to death. If, if, if you are in Christ, sin no longer reigns, but it does remain. And if we think that Christians shouldn't struggle with sin or, or that if someone does struggle with sin, they're, they're not a Christian, we fail to do justice to the myriad of imperatives in the New Testament. First and foremost, Paul's words here, by the Spirit, you must put to death the deeds of the body. They're still there. You must put them to death. That is an ongoing reality and, and an ongoing imperative for every believer. Christians must put sin to death. The second, Paul calls sin the deeds of the body, not because the body itself is bad, but because the body is the instrument by which we commit sin. Right? Paul is being concrete. We must change the way that we live now in the body. And he's already talked about reorienting our mind, but gospel transformation must go further than that. Our very lives must change. We put to death the deeds of our body. And notice, third, then, that, that we put to death. That is, as we talk about the Spirit's work, there is still our responsibility. Notice that the cooperative nature of this work. If by the Spirit you put to death. The Spirit does not put to death without our work, we, and, and we cannot put to death apart from His work. We must be active in the Christian life. We must do something. Notice, fourth, what it is that we do. We put to death. That is, the, the road to life in the Spirit is the path of putting sin to death. Here Paul says, put to death the deeds of the body. In Colossians 3.5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That is, put to death everything that is focused on the present life. That, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy uh, the life that God gives us here and now. We can enjoy it as a gift from our Father. But any enjoyment of this life that begins and ends here, we must put to death. Every desire that terminates on the present life and doesn't rise to the enjoyment of God in all things must be put to death. And, and putting to death, of course, that, that, that sounds and is painful. I must say no to any desires that are misoriented. I must deprive myself of some things that I want because I want to serve God above all else. Putting to death is hard, but resurrection always comes after death. That's the way the gospel works, right? If I am to experience life in the spirit, I must first die to the flesh. Jesus puts the principle in this way in Matthew 16, 25. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If I cling to the things of this life, I will, in the end, lose my life. But if I let go the things of this life, the things of this age, I will find what life was truly meant to be. To put sin to death is to begin to experience true life in the Spirit. And so the Spirit right, unites us to Christ, justifies us in Christ, and then gives us life in Christ by, by reorienting our minds now uh, giving, and giving us life forever and empowering us to put sin to death in the present. As we engage in, in the present battle and by the Spirit say no and put to death the misdeeds of the body, that we might experience resurrection life to come. So the Spirit's uniting us to Christ, freeing us from sin, giving us life. What, what are we to do with all of that? Well, there are a couple things. First, whether we are the ones in need of change or we are trying to help someone else change, we must live in prayerful dependence upon the Spirit. 
We need the Spirit to work in us. We need the Spirit to be active. And prayerlessness is functional independence. We must seek the Spirit's work in our lives and the lives of those we are seeking to serve. We must live in prayerful dependence upon the Spirit. Second, we must participate in the Spirit's work. He, he wants us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit and put sin to death. And so we must seek to guard our minds and hearts from becoming wrongly consumed with the things of this age. You know, one of the reasons that Eve fell so quickly in the garden was because Satan got her to contemplate sin. The, the mind is our first defense against sin. And if Satan breaks down the wall of our minds, our bodies are the next thing to fall. Not only guard your mind, but fill your minds with the things of the Spirit. Set your minds on the things above where Christ is. Meditate on who Christ is, on what he has done. Remember the gospel. And yet not only guard and fill, but also say no. Put to death what is earthly in you. Refuse to give sin breathing room in your soul. Suffocate it. Starve it out. Put it to death. Don't give it one inch of room. And then finally, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, when he was once teaching on this passage, added, recognize that you do not do this in isolation. Now, Paul's language throughout this passage is almost exclusively plural. We engage in this battle together. We need one another to help us know what we must guard ourselves from and what we should meditate on and where we need to say no. We need others to help us in that endeavor. Sin thrives in isolation. Put it to death by bringing it into the light and doing battle side by side in the Spirit against sin. And Romans 8.13, right? Again, Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, you, plural, put to death the deeds of the body, you, together, will live. In light of that, let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for the gift of your spirit. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We ask that you would help us to walk by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would help us to remember that, that our life is secure in Christ, that our hope is secure in Christ, and so help us to walk as people who are alive in Christ in such a way that brings glory to him and glory to you, our Father in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.